you take care of your trumpet. Your trumpet will take care of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sad to say that your flute will not take care of you, even if you do take care of your flute. I know we've talked before about AI and music a little bit here oh. and there. Yeah, and and yeah. we've also talked a fair bit about Beethoven. I have a this thing for you. I saw something about this on Twitter, and I've I sort of went and checked it out. It's on our favorite website, Classic FM, who who are the people who broke the uh, Mozart Allegro and D news. Okay, I just got a link from you. Am I looking at the right thing? Beethoven's Unfinished Tenth Symphony, complete by artificial intelligence. Yep, that's it. I'm curious what you what you make of this. There is actually a, a video about halfway through mm, where you can um, listen to yeah. the, the scherzo. So we'll, we'll definitely put a clip there when we get to that. So before we dive into it, <laughs> the curse of the 10th symphony, <laughs> which I think is so funny how, yeah. um, how so many composers, not everyone, Mozart being an obvious exception, but so many composers stopped at nine and died <laughs> while writing their 10th. <laughs> yeah. So Mahler, Beethoven. But I've always thought that the so-called Curse of the Ninth Symphony is a bit overblown. It's kind of like the 27 Club for musicians, you know, people who, who died when they're 27 or something. Yeah, yeah. Like Kurt Cobain, uh, who else? Hendrix. I'm, I'm forgetting some other people. It's, it's a long list, but it's a classic case of confirmation bias where, you know, right, right. there are hundreds of thousands of musicians who live well past 27 and then, you know, 10 people OD. And now it's a Wikipedia page. You know, the, yeah, the, right, the vast right. majority of composers have composed either several less than or far more than nine symphonies. But, you know, there's like, what, four composers who stopped at nine? And now there's like the curse of the nine symphony. It's like, <laughs> I think, too, though, I think what adds to it is for many of those composers that stopped at nine, the ninth symphony of theirs was like their pinnacle, their magnum opus. Yeah. I think everyone just kind of wonders what would a tenth symphony have sounded like by Beethoven just because yeah. the ninth was so brilliant and. No, that's true. There's an added mystique there of because composing isn't really an athletic endeavor per se. So composers often go mm -hmm. out in their prime. Yeah, right. So there, right. there's an added mystique. It's not like, you know, when someone like Roger Federer eventually retires. I've, there's some yeah. closure there because I'll be like, I caught his best years. Right. You know? right. Which are not right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not exactly. <laughs> but yeah, and also 10 is a big number numerically and in, in our base 10 number system. So I, I think it's a natural yeah. sort of thing just to be, you know, drawn towards and stuff. Just to defend myself. Yeah, it is a confirmation bias. But yeah, there's something a little interesting and curious about it, I'd say. Yeah. But be curious no more, because now we know. Um, yeah. <laughs> Beethoven's Unfinished 10th Symphony, complete by AI. Let's see. Oh, so this was... Wow. This Okay, well, we're dating the recording hour of this episode. But was this published this morning? article yeah man don't let it ever be said that itl is not on the cutting edge of breaking news in the classical music world last time we broke the prime phonic <laughs> news this time we're doing the ai <laughs> i mean i mean even when new pieces are discovered too we yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly okay all that remains of beethoven's 10th symphony is fragmentary fragmentary oh nice word sketches of the first movement which he started before his death in 1827 oh my god I didn't even read this, but parentheses, read more about the curse of the Ninth Symphony here. <laughs> okay, um, project was started in 2019, made up of music historians and musicologists, composers and computer scientists, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but anyway, so the, the meat of this looks like this was done at Rutgers University by Dr. Ahmed Al-Gamal. Um, yeah, we'll go with that. Oh, so the entire piece will be premiered on the 9th of October at the Telecom Forum in Bonn, Germany, place of Beethoven's birth. Yeah. 
Huh, okay. And recording will be released the same day. Okay. Not gonna lie, I thought I was gonna be able to click a link and like start listening to it, but okay. Oh, I, you, you, I think you scrolled past it. It's it's right up top. Oh, here it is. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. This is the third movement, it looks like. Okay, so I listened to 30 seconds of it. Yeah, um, kind of get the point. It sounds like something Beethoven would have written. I'll say that. Fair? Yeah. If you played that for me and didn't give me any context, I would think, oh, was this something, was this a sketch that became one of his symphonies or something, right? This sounds very Beethovenian. However, there's no way his 10th symphony would have sounded like that. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, Beethoven was, it's a cliche, but we mean it. I mean, he was such an innovator. He would not have just... He would not have written something that sounds like the Fifth Symphony or Tenth Symphony. No, he would have tried something completely new and different. Mm -hmm. If you scroll down a bit, there's a paragraph where they say, the first test was to see if an audience of experts could determine where Beethoven's phrases ended and where the AI extrapolation uh, began. When they couldn't, the team knew they were on the right track. So, so Almost like a Turing test, sort of. Yeah. So that's interesting. And, and I think that fits in with what you were saying, which is that if you played this for me and said this is early Beethoven or something, I would say, okay, that passes my smell test. I wouldn't be able to tell looking at this where the fragments end and where the extrapolation began. But I listened to the whole piece and it sounds fine, but there, there's something in the transition between elements that, 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 sound a bit, that sound a bit boring. And I think that it tells you a lot about you know, how Beethoven was as a composer and, and, and what is actually interesting in music, right? It's not necessarily the theme, but the transitions between themes and the way he sort of extrapolates upon them himself, which is not to say that I'm pinpointing those transitions as where the AI extrapolation began and Beethoven sketches mm -hmm. ended. Because while that's like an interesting kind of Turing test to run, I think that's kind of unfair with, especially with Beethoven, the way that he composed, you know, with, with his, his manuscripts showing scratchings out many times over until he settled on, uh, the, you know, the, the final form that the piece would take. The, the fragments themselves might be totally uninspired. That doesn't tell you much about how the actual symphony would have turned out. But, yeah. I mean, who knows? Who knows? It's, it's hard, to, hard to tell. I mean, obviously, I think the technology is really cool. And um, Yeah, no, of course, yeah. You know, it's kind of like when AlphaGo beat Lee Sedong or someone. You know, it's not... Yeah, right. This um, stage is just a, a game for it to play while it's learning how to, how to do more interesting stuff in the future, like, you know, actually make its own compositions. Right, right. Yeah, so it's interesting. So a few things there. I think you totally hit it on the nail with Beethoven's transitions. So we've brought it up before, but it's something I watch maybe every few months just to remind myself. I watched the entire Daniel Barenboim Masterclass series in Chicago with the students learning different Beethoven sonatas. It's worth pointing out to people who haven't seen these. They're quote-unquote students in that they're getting a masterclass from Barenboim, but you know these are people like Long Long, Daniel Beast. You know, they're, they're at that point, they're already established professionals. Yeah, exactly. Um, who, could, who could sort of stand to hone their musicianship a little bit. 
Yeah, no, like all, all these kids, they're all like, yeah, in their early 20s or so and are already performing with the New York Philharmonic and the Berlin Philharmonic and stuff. But Daniel Berenboin has been playing these piano sonatas and studying Beethoven for 55 years. So he, of course, knows things that you can only know by doing that. So anyway, they're just really brilliant classes. And one of the things that Berenboin keeps kind of coming back to, and one of the things that's kind of the hardest for these students to really master is the transitional material in these works and stuff. And knowing the true role of the transitional material, like really why why did he put a transition here but not over here, right? Is there these different subjects and themes? He really felt he needed an interesting transition. And weird, this transition seems like it's from a different piece and almost has nothing to do with the rest of the piece where this other piano sonata, the transition is pretty brilliant and seamless and you almost forget how the piece started. Or in the case of the Volstein Sonata, you almost forget what key you even started and your ear has just been taken on this journey that you start in C major, but that <laughs> the Volstein Sonata is technically Sonata number 21 in C major, but it's hardly in C major. <laughs> just the first mm. chord is a C major chord. But yeah, so that's something in those master classes they spend a lot of time trying to figure out and trying to get right. And kind of the mark for the Turing test, if I were listening to something like this, would be, oh, wow, does that transition sound like a Beethovenian transition or not. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't quite thought about that. But but I will say, yeah, I also think, you know, I'm not the guy that's scared of AI conquering the music world to some degree because I know it's inevitable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is kind of cool. Like, it, it's a cool project and full of kind of cool challenges. And props to Rutgers and that department for actually doing this and taking this on because this would never... Rutgers is like a very traditional, like, at least as far as I know, it's a very, like, engineering focused, real-world focused school trying to solve real problems in the way many music schools aren't. (laughs) So I think it's only natural this would happen for a very good reason. You know, this would happen at a school like Rutgers where this would never happen (laughs) at Juilliard. Right, right. (laughs) I think you're right. But this kind of stuff, I'm not really afraid of it or uh, put off by it because I always think that it's a way to learn more about Beethoven, right? Yeah, yeah. I think the question of can you tell which parts were written by Beethoven and which parts were written by the AI? I think that's a red herring because, like I said, the fragments by Beethoven are incomplete. So it's like a first draft for him. So we have no sense of how you know it would have sounded at the, the close of the project. So to me, it's more a way to listen to it and, and sort of think about and, and meditate upon how does this sound different from what you would expect Beethoven to sound like? And what does that, yeah. te- what does that tell us about the way that he composes and what does that tell us about what's what's interesting about him you know yeah yeah if i were a composer and i was running like a composition master class teaching a bunch of young composers or if this was a composition podcast all about music composition man instead of just having another composer come on and interview them it'd be cool to have this professor come on and talk about this that'd be really fascinating and really interesting and we'd learn a lot i'm sure yeah absolutely um, well, anyway, I look forward to hearing, you know, his 10th symphony and his 11th, his 12th street shooter. <laughs> I hate to say it, but I think we're going to be getting <laughs> Allegro yeah. D was just the beginning. This is, you know, there's going to be new works by Beethoven AI and Tchaikovsky AI. <laughs> so you said you had something else as well? To kill some time, I went to Sparkle and was doing some Heck yeah. some classical music quizzes. And, oh and no! Is this what I think it is? 
Do you want to introduce the website Sporkle to our listeners? Oh, good, good point. I forgot that. I mean, yeah. for us, we've been playing. I mean, I think like the day after we met and like became friends, <laughs> like the day after we had that day long hangout in our dorm lobby. Yeah, we instantly started challenging each other on Sporkle trivia quizzes and things. Yeah. So it's a uh, so Sporkle.com. That's S P O R C L E, and it's just a website that has. A ton of different quizzes on topics like science, geography, history, literature, music. Everything. Everything, yeah. And, I mean, that's kind of it. It's hard to describe, really. You have to yeah, kind of go there and check way, it out. So it's kind of a crowdsourced trivia site where hmm. users can create quizzes. And some of them are really fun and interesting. You know, anything from identify the movie by the second line in the film. It's not the opening line, but the, the, the second line. There's somewhere... Um, some of them really make you think differently in a cool way, like where you have to correctly guess in, in order the 20 largest metro systems in the world. So it's funny because there's some huge cities like Mumbai, right, that doesn't that don't have a large metro system. But there's some smaller cities that would have an unproportionately large metro system like Munich, Germany or something. So it, it makes you kind of think a bit differently in things. So I, I really love those sorts of quizzes that it has where it's not just your classic name the biggest cities in the world. There's some fun takes on things like that. Yeah. And I chose this particular quiz because I think there's some stuff here that might trip you up, Chris. But I think nice. um, okay. for the for the people who are listening, it's accessible enough that I think they could do some damage on this too. So I highly encourage people to play right. along and see see how many of these they can get. Link will be in the show notes, of course. Yeah. Right. And uh, and if you're listening along, you know, make sure to make sure to pause after the question so that you can you can answer it before Chris does cuz I'm sure he'll be lightning rounding this. <laughs> we'll see. I, I don't want. I don't want to. Yeah, I mean, I'm. I'm a little nervous now. I have to. I have to live yeah. up to that. Okay. So the name of this quiz is: Can you name these triplet answers for various classical music categories? Oh, interesting. Okay. So, so there's there's um there's ten categories, and each of them has three answers. Nice. Okay. So I'll give you the category, and you get, you give me the three answers, and I'll just go okay. down the list. Can we skip questions or yeah. Yeah. if you want to come, okay. okay. come back to any, you can just okay. skip it. So we have six minutes on the clock. Let's see what happens. All right, let's do it. The famous three B's composers. Bach, Beethoven, Brahms. Nice. All right. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Types of instruments in a string quartet. Uh, violin, cello, viola. <laughs> yep. I was really overthinking that one. <laughs> yeah, that one's weirdly named. All right, here's the first one that tripped me up. Nicknames of Mendelssohn non-cantata symphonies. Okay, real quick, Um, do we get penalized for a wrong answer that we no. can't guess again? Okay, gotcha. Sorry, say it again. So uh, nicknames for Mendelssohn symphonies that aren't cantatas. Gotcha. Okay, the Italian symphony, the Scottish symphony. It's always the third one. No, uh, don't Don't tell me. I was about to say the Habsburg Symphony. <laughs> I'm, surprised, I'm surprised there isn't a Habsburg Symphony somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> I think someone would try to suck up to it. <laughs> ah, can we come back to it? Yeah, we can come back to it. That's okay. the one that tripped me up too. All right, sections of sonata form. Oh, okay. Oh, jeez. Exposition, um, development, recapitulation. Nailed it. First, three instruments to play the melody in Ravel's Bolero. Oh, snare drum does not count. Yes. <laughs> oh, crap. Shit. Can we come back to it? Yeah. Back? Yeah, I'll, I'll percolate that one. Yeah. Uh, three sharps in key signature A major. 
three sharps in the key signature. Okay, yeah. so it's F sharp, C sharp, um, G sharp. I was, I was going to say, if you choke on that, that's going to be uh, that's going to be podcast gold here. I was trying really hard not to. <laughs> All right. Uh, Wait, am I right? Wait, that's right, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, G sharp. Okay. Yeah. Good. Okay. All right. Uh, the names of the three tenors. Oh, um, Luciano Pavarotti, Pasto Domingo, and Jose Carreras. Nice. The third one there is uh, the other guy, as they call him in Seinfeld. <laughs> that's right. That's right. This one, I completely screwed it up. Composers featured in Balanchine's ballet, Jules. Ooh, Tchaikovsky? One of them. Crap. <laughs> I think it's the... Um, ooh, I saw it, too. That's the thing. <laughs> I saw it, like, a few years ago here in San Francisco. Can we skip it for now and circle back? Yeah. Okay. All right, we'll circle back to that. Um, Verdi opera is based on Shakespeare plays. Okay, we have Aida? Uh, that's not a Shakespeare play. No, no. O- Othello? Nice. Um, Macbeth? Is that it? I think so, yeah. And crap. Okay, let's come back to that one too. That's it. All right. Three names of J.S. Bach's fifth child. Oh, God, I don't know this. I have no idea. I have no idea. <laughs> oh, is, it, is that Carl Philippe Emanuel? That, that is Carl Philippe okay. Emanuel, yeah. So the ones you're missing are you, you yeah. still need two more composers in Balanchine's Jewels. Okay. A Verdi opera based on Shakespeare, and the yeah. third nickname for Mendelssohn Symphony. Oh, you still also need the three instruments to play the melody in Bolero. Oh, okay. So I'm going to go, assuming they don't have to be in order, the first no. three instruments. Okay. It's one of them bassoon, I think. Nice. Lute? That's the only one I yeah. got. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just going to guess um, trombone. No, that would have been epic, though. All right, you got 40 okay. seconds on the clock. Okay. What's the third Shakespeare play? Romeo and Juliet? <laughs> I don't think so. No. No, no. Okay. Richard the Third. Yeah. Richard the Third. That would, that would also be a great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was a deep cut. <laughs> it's, it's, he, he did an opera based on Henry the Sixth, Part Two, but not Part One. <laughs> yeah. All right. That's it. 25 out of 30. 25 out of 30. Okay. It's okay. So let's go through the ones I. So um, the nicknames of Mendelssohn symphonies. You got Italian and Scottish. The one that you missed was Reformation. Ah, okay, yes. That's number five. And I kept wanting to call it the Dresden Symphony. So I kept guessing Dresden and I thought, am I spelling Dresden wrong? And couldn't get it. And then the the second instrument to play the melody in Bolero is clarinet. Clarinet, okay. The only one I got there was flute. So you did one better than I did there. This one I completely ate it on. The composers featured in Balanchine's ballet. Jules. Yeah, okay. Um, you, you got Tchaikovsky. Um, okay. The other two are Foray and Stravinsky. Oh, there we go. Okay. The cool thing by Balanchine, too, because, yeah, it's Tchaikovsky's not ballet music. Hmm. I think it's from his symphonies, but it's cool to see not the Nutcracker, not Swan Lake, and not Sleeping Beauty, other Tchaikovsky music also set to ballet or ballet set to it, I guess, and just seeing like how well it works. Part of that is just echoing the genius of Tchaikovsky, but also it's the brilliance of Balanchine. Just it, just feels so organic and natural that you wouldn't you wouldn't guess twice if someone told you otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And then the Verdi operas based on Shakespeare plays. You got Otello and Macbeth, and the third yeah. one is Falstaff. Oh, Falstaff. I th- and this I saved this one for last because I thought this was a bit unfair. And if anyone's listening who's um got some ties to Sporkle, I would take this off with them because Falstaff <laughs> is not based on 
a Shakespeare play per se, Falstaff is a character in Shakespeare's plays, in the King Henry plays. He's obviously a major character, a comic character, but there's no, there's no play called Falstaff. I guess it could still be based on the Shakespeare play, but that felt a bit misleading and I had a bone to pick with that. Interesting. So 25 out of 29, is that what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, 20, 20, yeah we'll, we'll mix that. So it's 25 no, no, out of 29. It's fine. I realized I said La Boheme when I was thinking out loud. Yeah, I'm now, I now realize that's not by Verity. <laughs> right. <laughs> Man, I'm butterfly. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm curious how the listeners did, because I think my experience was borne out that, you know, there were parts of it that I was able to blaze through, but some tricky questions in there that I, I just couldn't get a, a grip on. I think you know the one I thought you were going to do, right? Which one? The greatest Sporkle quiz of all time, pasta shape or Italian composer. Yeah. Man, I, w- I would do that to you on air. That's one of those quizzes you think is going to be easy and then it smokes you. What's the wagon wheel called? Oh, no, that's Rotoli. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we'll put a link in the, in the show notes and, and maybe we'll put a link for the pasta one too, if anyone is daring enough to try that one. Shreeder, do you know what time it is? What time is it, Chris? It is time for our very first sponsor. Wow. I was going to say I thought it was time for me to get a coffee because I'm pretty tired. Oh, well, you're in luck because <laughs> our sponsor just so happens to be Quorum Coffee. Quorum Coffee brings a premium coffee shop experience into your home. At QuorumCoffee.com, you can buy the new and iconic Coffee to the People Roast, which is 100% Arabica coffee grown in Indonesia and roasted in Los Angeles, and then sold to you at an affordable price. And you can even save more if you sign up for a subscription and get a few bags a month. At Quorum Coffee, they believe that the premium coffee experience doesn't stop with your first sip of coffee. No, that's where it starts. So at quorumcoffee.com, you can find all sorts of cool things, interviews with artists, fun coffee trivia, an active blog, all that community you get from your local coffee shop and maybe haven't gotten over the pandemic. You can now get together with a whole bunch of other coffee lovers at quorumcoffee.com. Full disclosure, I, Chris, this is Chris talking. (laughs) (laughs) I am a co-founder and partial owner of Quorum Coffee. But we believe coffee and classical music, coffee and great art just go together. I mean, they go together, have always gone together, and will always go together. So it's a natural sponsor and partnership to happen here. Indeed. I mean, where did secular music take off? It took off in the coffee shops. Damn straight. Also at QuorumCoffee.com, you will find a featurette of Impolite to Listen, where Schreeder and myself are interviewed and ask questions about the podcast, about classical music, about coffee. Shreeder and I both love coffee. We almost started a coffee podcast. but (laughs) but Yeah, if you head to the website under the culture section, you'll find a little article about us. So we thank Quorum Coffee for supporting us and supporting the show. Now, back to business. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever business is. You know what this is? Is it coffee? No, it's actually actually tea, but... So in playing with the lighthearted, fun nature of this episode, you know, we're not here being the usual ambush journalists. We are taking down the status quo of the classical music (laughs) societies. But, you know, in the spirit of having fun and doing sort of a lighthearted back and forth, I compiled a list of kind of rapid fire questions for us to go through and have some fun with. And I know we already had a formal anniversary special Q&A. 
And I thought we'd talk about some cool things there. I think listeners enjoyed it. I, I know some listeners reached out and, and enjoyed it. We got a lot of stuff on, on the record. But yeah, here's some more questions that we get asked in our personal lives. I'm sure we, to be fair, kind of ask this of others and people might find interesting. So let's get ready for some rapid fire questions and we'll, we'll see where it goes. Sounds good to me. All right. So question one. What do you think is the most underrated instrument? Hmm. I'm going to say viola. Nice. Okay. Explain yourself. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Obviously, there's a whole genre of viola jokes, which is probably the most popular of the sort of instrument joke genre. It's, yeah, it's, kind of the, right. it's kind of the instrument that gets ragged on the most. But I think there's a lot of really interesting repertoire for the viola. And their place in the orchestra, or even sort of in a, in a string quartet, is a really interesting one. That alto pitch, middle of the harmony sort of voice, yeah. Exactly. Bach reportedly loved to play viola in his own orchestras because he loved to be in the middle of the harmony, like you said. That's where all the action is in like harmonic structures, right? Yeah. So. And Hindemith loved playing the viola for the same reason. He was a violist. He was like a legit trainer. violist. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, in general, it seems kind of like a midfielder in football and soccer. Yeah. It, it maybe doesn't get the kind of glory that a striker does, but it's really where the, the maneuvers really sort of take place, right? It's like yeah. the middle of the harmony where you're really controlling the timbre and the sort of the way the group is playing from that position, you know? Sure, yeah. And as someone who, who plays the flute on top of the harmony, I, it's a position that I envy. Yeah. It's a case, too, I want to say, where... The no-brainer is to write for violin, right? Write a violin concerto, write this. It's also sort of a no-brainer to write for cello, right? It's a very different animal. But like viola, it's very intentional. Like if a composer chooses to write for viola, there's a reason, Yeah. right? It's one of those cases where even having a reason is itself a good reason. <laughs> I mean, the great example, right, is that Debussy trio for viola, harp, and flute. Yeah, that's one of my um, favorite pieces. Yeah, so, I mean, it's cool because I know that was, like, part of a set he planned to compose of, like, atypical instrumentation sort of stuff. But still, he chose viola, and for the reason of the, the tone being so warm and beautiful, and he wrote very intentionally for that, right? Where sometimes I get the feeling, like, piano, violin, right? It's like, all right, I have a piece I want to write, and the instrument is kind of an afterthought. Yeah. But, and I think the reason, I mean, we all know the reason there's so many viola jokes is like middle school orchestra right everyone wants to play violin but if you choose to play viola you could be pretty mediocre and still get first chair because no one wants to play it <laughs> yeah that's the origin of that i believe but when you get to the professional level that that's a mute point everyone who's good is good What's your answer? The oboe. I hmm. love the oboe. I love the tone of the oboe. I love um I love how composers are again very intentional in how they use the oboe. It's just such a beautiful, mysterious, sort of piercing tone in a gorgeous way. A good example is that um solo at the beginning of the second movement of Tchaikovsky's fourth symphony. It's just beautiful and gorgeous and just melancholy. And look at the way film composers have used oboes and stuff. It's it's such a powerful instrument. Or an instrument that's not that loud, let's say, right? Yeah. It's, it really has a, a subtle power behind it. Mm-hmm. 
And I also love how um, being an oboist is almost like being like a samurai because you craft your own reeds and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you make your own reeds. You spend a lot of time with knives and like carving wood and make. Yeah. So you're like a craftsman, too. It's pleasingly industrial. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, next up. Question number two. What do you think is the most overrated classical piece of music in like the standard repertoire, let's say? I guess that's almost by definition. If it's overrated, it's probably in standard rep. Yeah. But, okay, uh, I, I got I got one. I have to pick between two, but they're both by the same composers. So uh, I'll, I'll go with the Italian Concerto by Johann Sebastian Bach. Okay, okay. I think that has a charm out of all proportion to its craft, but it's not even all that yeah. charming. Um, yeah. I, find, I find it kind of a, a sort of dull piece, especially the outer movements. You know, it's full of these self-important triads supporting, you know, what are ultimately weak harmonic progressions. It's very yeah. Handelian in that way. It's a piece that's not becoming of of Bach, and yet inexplicably it is, it's so often played not only by students and amateurs, but by professionals, you know. Mm-hmm. It's one of his most popular pieces, yeah, it you is. know. It, it's played more often in programs than his partitas, his keyboard partitas, which is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Glenn Gould called it, right, Bach for people who don't like Bach. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would second yeah. that. Just to clarify what the word overrated means. Overrated does not mean bad. Overrated means yeah. exactly that. It's, it's rated disproportionately high um, compared to the yeah. actual you know, quality of the piece. Yeah, nope, agreed. Real quick, just curious, what's the other piece you were thinking of? I was going to say the chromatic fantasy, also by Bach. You know, that's another piece that's very popular of his. Okay. And it's, it's yeah. very often played. But to me, it just, it's just a, a series of meaningless jumping off points from diminished chords to their resolutions and then hopping on the next diminished chord. It's very spineless. It sounds like cool. Like, you know, if you put it on the, if you put it as like the background for some neo-noir film, you know, there's some moments where it could sound like, you know, mysterious and cool. But again, it's not a bad piece, but the fact that those two pieces are really sort of often played in recitals by yeah. key, by keyboardists. Yeah. It kind of baffles me when there's no shortage of great Bach keyboard repertoire. You know, it's not... Yeah, I know. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. what's your most overrated piece yeah so it's funny i actually thought about this when i was compiling these questions last night so it has nothing to do with our previous conversation but i will say ravel's bolero (laughs) (laughs) that's a good choice so everyone performs it like it's performed it's some of the most viewed videos on the classical music category of youtube and such are like performances of bolero and it's a i'll actually go one further than what you said like it's it's not overrated. No, it's worse. It's just bad. I think it's just a bad piece of music. But everyone loves it and plays it. The thing that's so frustrating about it is Ravel is one of my favorite composers. I mean, he was such an innovator and such a thoughtful composer who wrote brilliant music. Right. And so I thought about that and I was like, all right, Ravel must know this piece is, is crap. And turns out he did. I found like a quote from him 
and he basically said he was very aware that this has become that this had become his most popular piece even back in that time and he he said my greatest masterpiece is without doubt bolero too bad it doesn't have any music in it (laughs) (laughs) i think people make a category error with that and you know when ravel said too bad there's no music in it that doesn't sound to me that he's necessarily you know roasting it but he's saying very practically that what Bolero is, is a, an etude in orchestration. Yeah. Right? And yeah. Ravel was a great yeah. orchestrator, and that's just what that is. You know, it's like, right. you, it's like you write an exercise, and that becomes your most famous piece. You know, that's yeah. not necessarily... Yeah. I mean, it's music, but it's not really... It's not really a piece that he wrote. It has nothing to do with anything else that Ravel wrote, except for the fact that it's a masterclass in orchestration. But that doesn't mean that we should be playing it. <laughs> it's inexplicable. What I think is the anti-Bolero is the final movement, but also the full piece, um, Pines of Rome by Respighi. Hmm. That's a cool piece where it's like a big crescendo and <laughs> the, whole, the whole final movement's just a big crescendo and epic, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. But it's the whole piece is actually a really cool piece of music, I think. Yeah. Um, if you're thinking of programming Bolero on your concert, you know, maybe consider Pines of Rome as an alternative. It was good enough for Disney. They put it in Fantasia 2000, so... Dude, can you imagine how boring a Bolero Fantasia would be? <laughs> <laughs> they like extend it so it's like for two hours. This is the whole movie of just people. I don't know what they would be doing. Just I guess marching to battle or something. I don't know what. Yeah, yeah. Oh boy, that'd be good. I'm realizing as I look at my rapid fire question list, a lot of these are very superlative questions. So. All in good fun. What's your least favorite concert hall? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> to look at or to or one that I've played in? Any way you want to approach it. Let me think about that for a second. Why don't you go first, if you have one? Okay. Ugh, mine's easy. Walt Disney Hall in Los Angeles. Okay. Fuck that concert hall. <laughs> <laughs> it looks hideous. And I do like a lot of architectural works by Frank Gehry. I do think he is kind of an overrated architect. He has a design language that he hates to pivot from. And so, so many of his buildings just look exactly the same, which I, for me at least, that's not the point of architecture. Oh, is that a smoke detector? <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I think, I think we have a burnt pizza in the oven. I kind of, I always, I always wanted to do what they do in the movies where they shoot it, you know, with the gun. <laughs> <laughs> Crisis averted. Cool. Okay, but so I hate the way it looks. It just looks like a jumbled scrapyard mess. I don't like the location of it. Like it's in downtown LA. There's so many better places to put a concert hall in LA than downtown LA. And I get they were trying to like revitalize that area and it sort of worked. That's like now a, I'm not going to call it a cool area, but it's definitely cooler than it was 20 years ago. LA is so geographically diverse and just as a city, the way the city's laid out, there's so many different neighborhoods and pockets. 
they could have done something really cool but didn't also the building like doesn't work well it, you've seen it right it's all that shiny metallic when you're walking around it it's blazing hot like the sun oh, reflects off of it man it's so stupid it breaks all the time like the organ is like that stupid looking jumbled mess of pipes that's supposed to be like you know an abstract organ i guess anyway it breaks all the time they're always like the roof is always leaking above it and like the organ's always getting maintenance done on it then inside the concert hall, I don't think it looks nice. I just don't like the fabric of the seats. I'm not like a conservative artistic connoisseur. No, I love modern edgy art a lot, but this just doesn't do that. I don't like the fabric is gross. The seats are so tight. I'm a little bit taller than six foot, but even like if you're even not quite my height, I, I, I think you would be really uncomfortable in the seats. Your knees hit the back. I love the LA Phil, but the concert hall and the thing that pisses me off the most about it is everyone loves it. <laughs> like they're brainwashed by it. They just they love it so much. And Walt Disney Hall, uh, yeah. I think there's a certain kind of person who sees something that's sort of aggressively modern and just thinks that they have to say that it's cool because otherwise they'll seem a bit philistine. Thumbs down. Thumbs down. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think I would have to go amongst the halls that I've played in. I'm going to have to call out the Musical Arts Center from <laughs> Indiana yeah, I University. I you say that. <laughs> it's at one time so amazing, and at the same time, it's so bad. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of fine, I guess, from like the viewer experience. The seats are fine. They're comfortable enough, and but playing It's in big, it, too. It seats like yeah. close to 2,000 people. It's a big concert hall right on campus, yeah. right next to the music school. So it's really nice and convenient. It's right there. Yeah, it's a big concert hall, especially for a university. But yeah, it's such a dry hall, but it's not just that it's, it's dry. Really dry. You mean that acoustically, right? Yes, yeah. Acoustic, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. the acoustics are really yeah. dry and not even in a sort of pleasingly precise way. I played in some dry halls that I've actually liked, you know. Hmm. It's the combination of the fact that it's dry and huge. You know, dry halls yeah. are actually really nice to play in when it's like an intimate setting. Right. It really is like a magnifying glass on on the sort of details of the sound and the articulation. And it could be really interesting, you know, if you sort of yeah. play into the dryness and you don't really worry about projecting too much. But the combination right. of it being super dry acoustically and then it's also this enormous hall with 2,000 people. So you, you actually do have to like project to the back of it. Right. That combination yeah. just makes it makes it a really annoying hall to play in. Yeah, yeah. It's something, too. It's really geared for opera and mm. the opera and ballet performances, right? Because it's cool and interesting how just big it is, right? The whole backstage area is huge. Like, it's seven stories, right? With that old janky elevator that, you know, with, like, the gate you slide across and stuff. So, yeah. But, yeah, it's, like, really geared to have that huge stage area to assemble all, all the all the sets and stuff. And there's that big orchestra pit right in front, too, that is big. I mean, it's huge. It could fit a 90-piece orchestra, I bet. Pretty comfortably. I wouldn't go that far, but it can fit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But um, it's really unique, right? Because like it's, it also just looks so ugly from the outside. Yeah. It's like a giant cement. We always joke if there's a tornado on campus, we're going to the Mac. Like there's no way. Like, yeah. Like, I mean, World War Three could have happened. Well, it was built during the early days of the Cold War. So yeah. <laughs> it was built to be indestructible just because it's, it's a giant block of concrete. Also, the carpet is so ugly in the lobby. That purple and orange <sighs> 70s era carpet. It was a concert hall that could have been so beautiful and great. But just like three or four really bad decisions prevented right. that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Good choice. Um, just to lighten it up, do you have a favorite concert hall? One you performed in, one you've attended? To, as you say, dance with the question a bit, 
I'll say that one of my favorite places that I've played in, which is not a concert hall, mm. is this uh, place called the Cave of the Mounds. If you want to look that up, you can get a sense of it. But it's this, it's this limestone cave system in Wisconsin. Oh, hell yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. Yeah. And this I, does I did, not have the same problem the Mac has. I bet. No, it, that's, it sounded beautiful in there. <laughs> this is just an underground cave. Yeah, yeah. I bet it reverberates quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. I did a couple of shows there with guitarist Steve Y. I think I mentioned him on the show before. Shout out if he's listening. And that was really fun because, it, first of all, it's a beautiful place to play. Like, the cave looks really yeah. cool. And it's not, it's not often that you get to say that you played a show in a cave. And then it sounded better than most of the concert halls that I played in. Yeah, I don't know sure. why. It wasn't merely that it was a reverberant place, but the acoustics actually seemed kind of well-balanced. It wasn't merely loud, but it had this nice mix of like a precision in the sound coupled with a far-reaching reverberation. That I, want, I wanted to like round up some acousticians or whatever. Acousticians? I don't know how you say that. Sure, sure. Some acoustic yeah, science yeah. people and be like, you guys need to study caves and make concert halls more like this because whatever God did here... He nailed it. <laughs> I'm kidding. God yeah. didn't do anything, but he's up there, just like man. Why don't they put the caves there for the music? Why don't they use them? <laughs> <laughs> Thousands of years, they're still not using the caves. How obvious could I make it? It's still over here building Disney Hall. <laughs> they're scuba diving in them. They're like doing all all this stupid shit. <laughs> Dude, start the cave movement. Yeah. Where we perform concerts in caves. I might, I might go buy concertsincaves.com. Dude, that's actually pretty dope. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, so my go-to answer is Boston Symphony Hall hmm. in Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> um, yeah, I love how it's a European concert hall stuck in America. It does not look like an American concert hall at all, right? It has that very thin balcony that wraps around it. It's like a big shoebox design, right? And it makes sense, right? It was one of the first concert halls built in the United States and before America maybe had its own architectural identity. But if you look mm-hmm. at Chicago Symphony Hall the, or the New York Philharmonic play, Carnegie Hall, they do not look like Boston Symphony Hall. Or the Boston Symphony Hall looks, it looks more like the Royal Concertgebouw in Amsterdam. It looks more like the Music Verein in Vienna. It looks just very European, but it's just funny how it's in America. And I, I think there's like a cool... It's also just so old and rickety. <laughs> like the chairs are really old and you feel like the founding fathers like sat in them maybe. <laughs> it's very colonial. It just has a really cool, awesome charm. That's part of the charm of Boston too. It's like a modern high-tech city, right? With MIT and all of biotech research, but it's also so historical and old school. Historical for North American standards. Right. <laughs> but I just think it has that cool charm that's really unique um, anywhere else in the world. So it's not high-tech, it's not modern, it's not new fancy glowy concert hall no it's just unapologetic for what it is and the acoustics are phenomenal too i, I think that's one of the charming things is even again acousticians or, or whatever you want to call them still marvel at its brilliant acoustics that were achieved in a pre-modern a pre-computer society yeah. right it was still to this day they don't really need to change it that much it still works fine so so if i could throw out one honorable mention though for favorite concert hall a concert hall that is great and I love, but I think never gets enough acclaim is Royal Festival Hall in London. That's where, not where the LSO plays, the London Symphony Orchestra, but where the London Philharmonic plays, an orchestra that's equally as good and brilliant, but different. And their concert hall is so cool. It's right on, it's right on the River Thames. And what's cool about it is it's a fun sort of mashup between like old and new. 
from like the blueprints, maybe you would think it's a old concert hall. Like it kind of has, again, sort of that shoebox design and like box seats on the sides and stuff. But when you go on the inside, it's almost futuristic looking. It looks like if the Death Star had a concert hall, <laughs> this would be it. <laughs> like it's it's very like shiny and metallic and industrial, but it's a beautiful concert hall and, and the acoustics are fantastic and the layout's really cool and fun and and yeah, it's really unique. I don't think there's really, maybe there is, but I, I'm just not familiar with another concert hall that kind of takes that approach and does as well with it as, as this one has. I second it. A piece you'd love to perform that you haven't. Could be a solo piece, could be orchestral, could be any of that. Huh. Maybe it's a slightly boring choice, but the Saint Matthew Passion by Johann Sebastian Bach. Okay. Yeah. It's an oratorio by him. It's it's one of his major works. Probably his his most major work. It's a yeah. it's a yeah. huge piece and it's a compilation of many chorales and arias and sort of other sort of instrumental pieces. It's a real compendium of Bach's works. You know, I think if you if you want to do sort of a, a crash course in, in all the different kind of style styles that Bach wrote, you could do worse than listening to the Matthew Passion. But because it's such a grand piece, it's it's seldom performed. In terms of gathering the resources, yeah. you know, the sheer number of people you need to sort of coordinate to to put it together is high enough that it's it's not as often performed. But I would love to take part in the performance of one sometime. Yeah, no, it's a. I mean, many people have said it's the greatest piece of music of all time. Yeah, so. I'm one of them. <laughs> Yeah, okay, yeah. What about you? Yeah, I have two, if, if I may. So in that spirit, I would love to perform just once, because once is probably enough, but just to have done it, the Berlioz Requiem. Oh, boy, yeah. Yeah, speaking about a logistically hard piece to perform. Yeah, yeah. Do you know off the top <laughs> of your just, head the number of people you need on stage for that? It's like dude, 900 okay, or something, I'm gonna pull right? up, Am I crazy? It's huge. Dude, I'm pulling up the Wikipedia article right now, because I want to actually get this right. So the orchestration is for... A very large orchestra, <laughs> like a large one. We're talking 16 timpani. Yeah. <laughs> um, four flutes, right? Eight bassoons, 12 French horns, four trumpets or cornets, two bass drums, 10 cymbals, right? It's is huge. But the thing that makes this piece even grander is there are four brass ensembles in addition to the orchestra that perform around the orchestra. You can't perform this piece really in the concert hall. All the recordings of it and performances are in cathedrals or Royal Albert Hall in London. That's a hall that's huge enough that you could pull it off. Because mm. yeah, the brass ensembles have to be far enough away from the orchestra to have the effect Berlioz was going for. But yeah, there's four of them. <laughs> I love the orchestration. <laughs> to the north, we have Orchestra One. <laughs> four cornets, four trombones, two tubas. To the east is Orchestra 2, four trumpets, four trombones. Orchestra 3 is to the west, with four trumpets, four trombones. And Orchestra 4 is to the south, 
four trumpets, four trombones, and four tubas. And then, as far as the general orchestra, again, we have 80 sopranos, 60 tenors, seven basses. These are singers, obviously. Um, a tenor solo. <laughs> 25 violin one, 25 violin two. I mean, 18 double basses. It's like a huge, huge piece. And I think um, it's only been performed a handful of times just because it's so logistically hard just to perform it and, and record it. There's a subsection of the Wikipedia article that are just the recordings. Yeah. <laughs> There's only like 12 of them, really. But the one I like, the one that I think is filmed really well, I believe it's in, I believe it's in Notre Dame in Paris. Hmm, I don't think I've seen this one. I think it's conducted by Dudamel and it's, it's it's fantastic. It's gorgeous, and um, yeah, it's just such a huge, huge piece that would just be fun. And again, once is probably enough. You probably only need to, you know, just check it off. Yeah. Another piece, just more back down to earth, I'd love to perform, and particularly a trumpet part I'd love to perform, would be um, the offstage trumpet part for Mahler Symphony Number no. 3, mm. the post-horn solo, it's called. It's one of my favorite trumpet excerpts, or just favorite trumpet things ever. It's, it's, I believe, in the third movement of the third symphony. It's this beautiful trumpet solo that's played offstage, so you're backstage, and the violin strings are just holding one note, and... You play this beautiful, beautiful solo that is meant to sort of sound like it's coming from the mountains or whatever, because it has a very distant sound to it because you're playing it backstage. But it, it's gorgeous, and you just know everyone in the concert hall is listening to you. Right? It just—it's a trumpet excerpt that's always asked in the audition circuit. It's always asked as like one of the last rounds, mm. like when they're really deciding between what two or three finalists are, are they going to pick for the trumpet chair of whatever orchestra this is one of the ones that will typically be there so so yeah it's a it's a gorgeous one and there's some great performances on youtube of it there's a great one of concerto doing it there's a great one at the proms festival probably with a lso i want to say doing it so yeah the rest of the symphony is just gorgeous as well yeah <laughs> needless to say that's a great choice
right here, right now, what is your favorite song? You mean with words? I guess, sure, yeah. Like, like something that is actually sung. My favorite song, I, I would probably have to go with a song called Desolation Row by Bob Dylan. Oh, nice. It's about 11 minutes long, maybe 12 minutes long. Um, and it's, it's, I would call it through composed. I don't know what the term was. Uh-huh. I don't know what the term would be in, in sort of pop music, but there's no repeating stanza. It's not like a traditional pop or rock song that has a chorus. It's just a long poem, really. There's not much of a song element to it, but I think the, the poem is really nice. You know, I think we've talked before about how, how I think Bob Dylan is a poet first and a musician second. So that's one that I really like because a problem with songs that I often have is the chorus element, actually. It kind of gets on my nerves and I find it, especially when the music is not that interesting, really hard to listen to. You know, three, three minutes feels like a lifetime. The Beatles rarely have that problem because their music is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's a statement of the century right there. <laughs> yeah. They're selling postcards of the hanging. They're painting the passports brown. The beauty parlor is filled with sailors. The circus is in town. Here comes the blind commissioner They've got him in a trance One hand is tied to the tightrope walker The other is in his pants And the riot squad What about you? Yeah, dude, my go-to answer I've had for a while I I like it for similar reasons Um, It would be Stardust by Hoagie Carmichael Hmm. who went to Indiana, too. I yeah. learned that a few weeks before I graduated. Like, there's that statue of the piano. Yeah. I walked by it like a zillion times. I didn't ever go read the plaque. <laughs> yep. You you recorded that song on one of your cocktail piano hours, right? Dude, okay. Yeah, so it was one of the first ones I recorded, and it, hmm. it was before I learned how to correctly, like, record audio into my computer. So it's just it's a pretty janky setup. I just sit my phone on the piano and just record all of my... <laughs> iPhone and well I post them all on YouTube and that one by far has the most views and comments and it's like a few thousand at this point oh whoa views that's pretty cool you know most of my videos you know maybe have a few hundred at most but for some reason yeah everyone I wonder what happened like it's, I guess it's, it's a pretty popular song so maybe it just shows up on the algorithm somehow maybe there's not that many people that recorded it just solo piano the way I did mm. it so yeah but I love so many things about it so I of course Love the lyrics. I forgot the, the lyricist's name. Who wrote? It's always great when you're typing in like a full sentence question into Google. <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious how, I mean, remember the old days of search engines where you had to like put like quotes where the thing you wanted to like really search for and then like yeah. secondary keywords. And now you just write, should I bring yeah. a jacket to Tulsa? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the lyrics are by Mitchell Parrish. Yeah, the lyrics I, are just... Uh, you said, um, you know, your Bob Dylan song. I mean, it's almost like a poem. And I feel that for Stardust, like it could just stand the lyrics. So Hoagie Carmichael wrote the song and it was only years later, maybe not a whole long, maybe like a few years, 10 years later that lyrics were set to it. But the lyrics, I mean, it, I mean, I feel like it, it could be a, a poem on its own. Just like the opening verse. And now the purple dusk of twilight time steals across the meadows of my heart. High up in the sky, the little stars climb always wondering why we're apart. Isn't that gorgeous? 
It took us 26 episodes, but here we are. Chris is reading poetry on the podcast. But I, I love how it starts with the word and. Like, there's not many songs that start with and, right? But almost like how it's just the continuation of a thought or yeah. something, right? And now the purple dusk of twilight time Steals across the meadows of my heart High up in the sky The little stars climb Always reminding me That we're apart You wander down the lane And far away And then the way it goes with the music is beautiful. I love how, again, you were saying it's so recomposed. There's no bridge. There's no real repeats. It's just one idea, one sentence, one thought, one, one story. And there's so many great versions and recordings of the song, but the best, I think everyone agrees, is Nat King Cole. Who I think we actually talked about this very recording on the Christmas special. We were yeah, yeah. talking about Nat King Cole, but the Gordon Jenkins orchestration is just sublime. It is it is beautiful. It's one of my favorite background orchestral orchestrations of a quote popular culture American songbook songs ever. Just the, the soaring violin lines are just beautiful and things and it's really popular. A lot of people love it. It's played at piano bars and weddings for the first dance. It's played at funerals. It's played at proms. I mean it's just I love that everybody loves it as well, right? It's always it gives me some faith in humanity, Streeter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good stuff can sometimes actually get appreciated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's always an interesting thing when, when a piece of music gets popular both for weddings and funerals. Yeah. There's a lot of pieces by Bach that fall into this category. A lot of his um, right. his Sauerbonds particularly. They get played a lot in, in both of those occasions. And that's when you know a, mu- a piece of music is really touching in some way that's hard to describe because you can fit it to whatever occasion you're in, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I think Eisenhower called this the greatest American song ever written or something. <laughs> That's a good wreck from Eisenhower. In my heart, it will remain my stardust melody, the memory of love's refrain. 